Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Happy New Year, and welcome to episode 10 of Hot and Bothered, a podcast on the politics of climate change for the 99%. I am Daniel Aldana-Cohen, Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Kate Aronoff, a writing fellow at In These Times magazine. Happy New Year to you, Daniel, and of course to our listeners. As always, we're hosted by Descent Magazine. Our episodes and links to articles that we mention on the show are up at descentmagazine.org. We're also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and we're also at the iTunes Store, where we would love for you to give us that loving, good rating. We've got the best ratings, uh, or will when you rate us. We love ratings. Uh, What we would love even more, though, is to figure out how to stop Trump and his cabinet from opening the floodgates to fossil fuel extraction and deregulation, which he is already angling to do. Yeah, we would really love to figure out how to stop that. Uh, So for that reason, we're doing something a bit unusual this episode. Instead of the typical feature interview, we're doing four, that's right, four separate interviews with folks all across the climate movement. And we're trying to get a handle on what Trump's administration is going to mean for climate politics and what can be done, uh, you know, more or less to fight back. So it's kind of a briefing on the climate justice movement at the dawn of this frightening new era. In contrast to formless and ambiguous existential despair, it's actually been kind of fun and and uplifting to talk to some of the folks planning to resist Trump and his agenda. So first, I talked to Mae Boovey, who's the executive director of 350.org, and then to Desiree Kane, a Miwok organizer and journalist who spent months at Standing Rock fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline. You may also remember that I spoke to her in episode five. And I talked to Cindy Weissner. She's the national coordinator of Grassroots Global Justice Alliance, which is itself part of a larger grouping around social and climate justice called It Takes Roots. And I talked to Kurt Davies. He's the founder of the Climate Investigations Center. Kind of a nice melding this episode of what we like to do on Hot Bothered, which is putting organizers side by side with people tackling all these thorny policy questions from think tanks and within academia. It really is. So first up, we'll start with my conversation with Kurt Davies. If the other three conversations are more about building coalitions within the climate justice movement, my conversation with Kurt kind of sets the stage by looking in another direction, which is to say looking at some of the coalitions between the Republican Party and the fossil fuel industry and how those are shaping the incoming Trump administration. So that's the kind of coalitions in a way that the climate justice movement is fighting against. It's always important to look left and right. So thanks for spelling that out for us, Professor Cohen. <laughs> uh, thank you for noticing that, you know, elegant symmetry. So uh, without further ado, we'll start with Kurt Davies. Kurt is the founder of the Climate Investigation Center. Before that, he was the architect of the Greenpeace web project Exxon Secrets, which was launched in 2004, and which helped to expose the oil giant ExxonMobil's funding of organizations and individuals who work to discredit the validity of climate science and to delay climate policy action. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Kurt. First off, could I just ask you, uh, you're the founder of the Climate Investigation Center. You know, how does the center operate? Uh, you know, what's, what's its kind of daily activity in terms of doing research on climate change and, and you know, the, the politics around that? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Climate Investigation Center I established three years ago to carry on work that I did at Greenpeace for 13 years. And our aim is to monitor the the groups and the front groups and the PR associations, PR companies 
and the individuals and companies that try to block uh, the implementation of climate policies that make sense that you know to solve the crisis and or or block clean energy itself so we are uh, you know looking at at things that the fossil fuel industry does to stall climate progress where we track the climate deniers that we've done for many years and look at how attacks on on the science uh, move forward so that's what we do Fantastic. So let me let me start then by asking you about uh, Rex Tillerson. Uh, you know, he's been the CEO of ExxonMobil, now the nominee to become uh, Trump's Secretary of State. And you know, in my read of the coverage, it's been a bit strange. It's it's mainly been about his Russia ties, but in the context of like Putin's personality or of geopolitics uh, in general. And then a bit of it has been around this issue of climate change denialism, um, but usually in the context of kind of domestic American politics. Can you help us connect the dots a little bit between the kind of the Russia piece and the climate piece uh, in terms of Tillerson's career and where we might expect it to be to be going? Well, it's a key question. And uh, it, it was, you know, it was discussed. There was a day long hearing the other day and several senators went at him pretty vigorously on climate, including my Senator Kane, our should have been vice president, um, Senator Merkley from Oregon, and uh, Senator Markey for a minute, but the, the and the questioning got kind of heavy with with uh, Tim Kaine because Kaine asked him to to fess up about Exxon's history of funding surrogate groups to block solutions, and and this is the larger plot is that we know Exxon was a ringleader from the roughly the mid mid 90s through the mid 2000s they ran a very aggressive campaign where they funded well over 30 million dollars they sent to various uh, conservative and uh, free market anti regulatory groups like the Competitive Enterprise Institute uh, a staff member of which is now on the transition team for the EPA by the way uh, to to run blocks against climate policy and that means they were Attacking the Bush administration for anything they said positively on climate, they were attacking attacking Senator McCain, and all of this is is tracked on my project ExxonSecrets.org uh, that we built at Greenpeace over a decade ago, and we have you know you you can see year to year they have uh, climate specific grants going to these groups, and then the, if you look at the output of that group in the world, they are bringing. Uh, counter scientists to Capitol Hill to say there's no connection to extreme weather. They're bringing, they're going in the media saying that science report by the UN is is baloney. You know, so that and Exxon couldn't say this themselves, couldn't do this themselves. The company's response to all this and the revelations a year ago by Inside Climate News and the Columbia Journalism School team with the LA Times, where they revealed that Exxon knew about climate science, knew full well the threat in the late 70s, early 80s, and and then kiboshed their own science uh, research program on it, uh, in part, you know, they shut down some really interesting experiments, and then went on to fund this denial program. Since that time, the company has said, we have nothing, to, you know, we just funded groups that we thought were doing good work. Well, we know differently. We know that they were very specific about the, the work. The title of the grant says climate change, and they were doing something on climate change. Tillerson won't talk about it. And his answer to Tim Kaine was really cagey. Uh, Kaine asked him, you know, again and again to, to, you know, yes or no, did you, did this happen? 
And then he said, are you not answering because you don't know or because you don't want to? And, and Tillerson said, you know, a little both. Um, and that was not a good answer legally because he basically took the fifth. He said, yeah, there's something here you want to investigate. Yeah, I mean, it seemed from watching Tillerson's uh, testimony, you know, it seemed to me that he's very good at not saying very much. Um, that's that was kind of his thing. So, and that that's what that's what made uh, Marco Rubio so angry because he wouldn't even talk about, you know, call Putin a, a war criminal and wouldn't admit that there were heinous crimes going on around the world. Uh, Tillerson's very smooth. You know what he did at the when he came to be the CEO at Exxon, uh, the previous CEO Lee Raymond was just this blunt bully, and he was like Darth Vader of you know the the, the Death Star being. Uh, being Exxon, and Tillerson brought in this more smooth look and uh, and manner, but he didn't really change anything at the company, except many people were snowed by their, their change of words. So starting in 2006, when Tillerson took over, Exxon began uh, a, a shift, a PR shift, and they, they started saying, we've been misunderstood. We've always believed climate change was a thing, but we just haven't said it well. And they, they did some very clever uh, uh, maneuvers that are a lot of which are detailed well in Steve Call's great book, Private Empire, that everyone should read about the company, about Exxon as a private empire, as a, you know, a nation state on its own. And what they, how they maneuvered out of this position of having funded this 30 million plus anti-science campaign was really well done in terms of PR. Meanwhile, they, they kind of, you know, slipped the jail cell. They uh, they got away with it, and um, and and it's um, it's now coming back. There's there's some investigations by the state of Massachusetts, the state of New York, uh, looking into this after the revelations again last year that showed uh, that they knew better in the 70s. But it's um, it's it's now a decade ago. You know when they when they changed this thing, and then they said they're in favor of a carbon tax, knowing full well that carbon tax is the least likely thing that to be passed. Uh, Tillerson talked about it again the other day, uh, that a carbon tax would make sense. Many people agree with that, but it depends on how you construct the carbon tax. But it, the, the truth there was that they were seen as out of the room on climate change because they were deniers. They, weren't, they didn't believe there was a problem. Why would you invite them to a meeting about policy solutions? So their lobbyists were being closed out of the dialogue about how to do law around climate change. Yeah, so so the PR definitely, I, I take your point, sort of a, some effectiveness there. I mean, it's interesting that I heard the other day Elizabeth Colbert of The New Yorker um, saying in an interview, well, you know, the, the funding didn't really stop after 2008 when they said that it did. And in fact, they're also funding essentially the most powerful climate denial organization in the world, which is the the Republican Party in, in the U.S. Congress. But, and the American you know, Petroleum Institute, which carried on. Yeah, it's really crucial. People might remember the Willie Soon story, this uh, scientist up at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center right, for yeah. Astrophysics um, that they funded through 2010. Uh, they still fund ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which as recently as a year ago had you know panels at their annual meetings where all these legislators, state legislators gather. There's a panel where a guy was talking about carbon dioxide as the elixir of life. It's beneficial for us to have more carbon dioxide, which is laughable to your audience, but that's a pretty heinous thing to purvey as the truth to state legislators. And they go home and they're, they've, been, they've been misled into thinking that there's no problem, that 
burning fossil fuels is good for us. Absolutely. Um, and so, you, you know, you mentioned, uh, just to come on this briefly before we get to, to, to Scott Pruitt, but you, you mentioned this, you know, the point about, about Russia and, and, and Rubio, Senator Rubio asking him, you know, what about Russia's horrible, you know, human rights record. But, you know, how do you see the connection between essentially as Exxon's business model in Russia and then the, the climate denial? I mean, it seems, again, it's always tempting to sort of see these as two separate issues. And yet it's one company uh, very active on both of these fronts. Well, the key questions there, I mean, this deal with the Russian company Rosneft, which is 70% owned by the Kremlin, essentially, uh, by the state. The other part is a BP ownership from a, a remnant from a previous company that the Russian state stole from its owner. Uh, sorted history. Exxon cuts this many billion dollar deal with them in 2011 and 12. They seal the deal. Uh, it gives Russia, it gives Russia technology. Exxon promised to share American-made technology that they didn't have on fracking and horizontal drilling and uh, armored Arctic drilling machinery that they couldn't build themselves. They don't have the know-how. And in return, uh, Exxon got these tremendous reserves that they can't buy anywhere else on Earth. And they say that the Russian Arctic is one of the last big carbon bombs from our rhetoric, but huge amounts of oil and gas are up there under the Russian Arctic Sea bed, and it's, it's bigger than Saudi Arabia. So that can't happen if you listen to the scientists. That oil and gas cannot be burned if we're going to remain safe, uh, safe climate. But um, so for Exxon, it's a huge, huge economic benefit. The other real reality is the only way they're able to do this is because of climate change, because the ice is not as vicious as it was in the Arctic 30 years ago, 20 years ago. And the Russian side of the Arctic is even more ice-free, more of the year already than the Greenland or Canada or uh, Alaska side of the Arctic. It's just the way the ice flows around the, the Arctic Ocean. So the project was made possible to get the tankers in there to take the oil out and you need less ice. And the biggest question is, how long has Exxon been talking to Russia about climate change and its benefits to Russia? You know, climate change will actually help Russia. It'll, you know, change the way you can grow grain. More of Russia will be arable. It will, you know, in a, the unfortunate truth is a country like Russia is better in a warmer climate, you know, is better off in a warmer climate. There are other disasters that will happen, but in terms of agriculture and, uh, you know, navigation and these things, it's just true. How long has Exxon been telling them that and working with them or planning this project based on climate change modeling at the same time as they've been deceiving the world about climate change and, uh, you know, trying to block climate solutions? That's really nasty if that turns out to be, you know, if they have been talking to Russia. You don't, we don't know that. We may never know that, but it's a good question. No, that's a great question. I, you know, I've never heard it, it heard it put that way. I mean, I think the notion, you know, that it's, I think it's well known that, you know, there are, are banks and, and, and fund managers buying frozen farmland in Russia, but um, that is a kind of a, a sort of vague and imprecise uh, benefit, ultimately, I guess, to, to Russia in some sense from warming, but the, the immediate kind of cash flow that would come from increased fossil fuel extraction uh, seems even more visceral, obviously, what Exxon would be after. So that's, yeah, it is quite shocking to think, right, that the, you know, we say the carbon bomb for climate science is just quarterly profits for Exxon. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's really unnerving. And then, 
I don't know if your if your uh, listeners have seen it, but there's a really amazing uh, Norwegian television show called Occupied on Netflix that everyone should watch. It's stunning and and a little bit upsetting about uh, Russia and oil and Norway. I won't give any more away. But the other big problem with this, with the Russian connection, is Russia has been a, a more of a denier state, similar to where the Saudi Arabians or Kuwait Kuwaiti were, you know, 20 years ago. At the, at the climate negotiations, those representatives were the worst and they were blocking everything and basically parroting uh, and being used by American utility and coal interests to run a very negative line on, um, on climate science and, and the urgency of climate science. And, and now it's, and then it was the Russians after that. And there's a lot of deniers in Russia, scientists who are uh, very specifically uh, you know, denying hanging out with the Heartland Institute. This guy, uh, Larianov, we've tracked for many years, who is buddies with Putin, who's a hardcore denier. So there may be there may be some synchrony there where you know Tillerson and Putin actually share a view that yes, there's something called climate change, but it's manageable. Tillerson's line is it's an engineering problem. You know, we'll adapt to this. We'll just move agriculture where it needs to move. He, he's an engineer, so he has this techno-fix kind of mentality, and maybe Putin feels the same way. You know, we'll, we'll get by and fossil fuels are too important. That's scary because if the U.S. and Russia team up in a strategy to kibosh the rest of the world's action under the UNFCCC, the, you know, the, the Paris Agreement, it's over. I mean, the, the, those two, you know, those two oil states, the United States and Russia, could effectively stall the entire world. Yeah, absolutely. No, it is extremely unsettling. And um, that show Occupied is great. I would definitely uh, recommend it. So let's move to, to Scott Pruitt. So uh, Oklahoma's attorney general, now the nominee to, to take over the EPA. Um, so Pruitt, you know, seems to hate the EPA or at least anything it would want to do about climate change. I guess there's some rhetoric about clean air and clean water as, as usual. Um, and in, in, a, in a lot of ways, Pruitt seems uh, more kind of cartoonishly, single-mindedly opposed to climate change than uh, Tillerson does. Um, at the same time, it, it doesn't seem that Pruitt is, is lacking for allies in the Republican Party. Um, Jeb Bush, who's you know, a relatively moderate Republican, is a big come out as a supporter of Pruitt. So you know, where, do, where do we, how does one kind of locate Pruitt in the networks of, kind of fossil fuel industry, uh, Republican Party, think tanks? You know, how does he sort of fit into this picture? Well, the, the key thing to read is a uh, Pulitzer-winning uh, a series of articles by Eric Lipton at the New York Times two years ago, uh, December 2014, where he uncovered that Pruitt, uh, at the helm of the Republican Attorney General's Association, RAGA, R-A-G-A, uh, had uh, basically run a pay-to-play kind of operation there where corporations could pay for access to attorneys general and get them to do their bidding. And it, you know, some of the things that were revealed where Pruitt was using an industry talking points letter and basically signing his name to it uh, without changing a thing. Uh, Freedom Information Act request revealed the draft letter, you know, from Devon Energy, and then he signed it. Just literally doing the corporation's work through this attorney general's association. Pruitt led that raga for a couple of years. He's been a member of it since he's been an attorney general, and it is a it's, it's where the corporations go to get their work done. So, for example, the Republican attorneys general were the leadership attacking the Obama 
Clean Power Plan, the EPA initiative to regulate power plant emissions. Uh, the, the Republican attorneys general came out attacking Eric Schneiderman and the other attorneys general who were looking into Exxon. Uh, Exxon gives money, you know, the corporations give money to Braga. So it's a, it's um, very unsettling that this guy who, you know, the attorneys general of of our states or the country are the most powerful lawyers, of course. Lawyers are supposed to be impartial or supposed to be, you know, one short of, you know, judges in their use, you know, upholding the law and, uh, and, and doing what's right. And here's a guy who is, um, has spent a lot of time suing the EPA and now he's being put in charge of the EPA. So it's, it is, um, it's a little more than, than bad. I mean, this guy is worse, is, the, is probably the worst risk that we have. He's also got a, you know, he's been a task force chair at American Legislative Exchange Council with connections to Coke. Uh, and, you know, other, other energy companies. He's also much more of a hardcore climate denier than even Tillerson. Um, he's, he's, he's one of the, you know, he, he's, he will openly say that there's doubt about climate change. So that could get interesting. It seems in a way that with, with Tillerson and Pruitt and, and maybe Rick Perry getting so much attention on the energy file, and, and then, of course, Trump, who, who gets a lot of attention, that the Koch brothers uh, have almost sort of disappeared from the story. So how actually, you know, what, what is their link to this kind of emerging network of, of climate denier, climate denier light folks in the, in the White House and, you know, their role kind of from the election into this new administration? It is, you know, basically the, the Koch apparatus, you know, the Kochs are part of a, uh, a spider web of organizations, and if you read uh, Dark Money, Jane Mayer's book, or anything else in the last six years, you know that they're connected to political organizations, to think tanks, to front groups, to you know every, every group that you know on the right or in the free market uh, anti-regulatory space. The Kochs are funding it, and with that money, they have set up this whole uh, network of people that are doing that work. So when Trump got elected, he was obviously surprised like everybody else. And uh, the, the folks who have stepped up to, uh, you know, to, to do this, do the job of forming a government are in many cases directly connected to groups like the Institute for Energy Research. Just to give you, you know, one example, here's a group, yep. IER, straight funded from Coke. Uh, one of their guys, Tom Pyle, is now the Department of Energy Transition Team lead. You know, so direct from Coke, not one step removed, is uh, the guidance that's going to go into uh, forming our, our, our Department of Energy, um, you know, figuring out the policies, maybe the budgets, and, and some stuff has already come out about how they've been interrogating the staff at DOE. Uh, and there, it goes on and on. So there's, you know, uh, Kathleen Hartman White, who's been involved uh, with Texas Public Policy Foundation. Um, she's now... In, involved in uh, the EPA transition, um, there, there are numerous co-connections to the core team, especially the transition teams. And then you look at you know, uh, Perry, who's nominated for to be Secretary of Energy, was one of the Koch's presidential picks a year ago. They were it was one of their you know candidates that they thought was uh, uh, should be president. So they basically have lucked out into, even though they didn't like Trump at all, and they tried to knock him out with all their might, uh, they may have even paid for that Russian intelligence that's now servicing, for all we know. 
the Trump, the Koch brothers, they yeah. now are in control and their people are forming the government. And let's remember that, you know, David Koch, when he ran against Ronald Reagan, the Libertarian Party in 1980, his the, the party platform was to shut down like 10 federal agencies. That was their, their whole game was shut down the government. So it um, does not bode well. Uh, we are we're watching this very carefully. Uh, it's it's a, a vast army that they have. The fortunate thing is that I don't think the majority of Americans agree with what these guys' agenda is. And, you know, I think that'll surface as uh, as the, the Trump team starts to, you know, uh, execute things like making the air dirtier, you know, cutting protection for children uh, in, in air pollution or, you know, cutting regulation of pesticides in food, things that make our food dirtier. I don't think that more than uh, a few people in this country think that's a very good thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, it's just, it's a strange combination of a historically unpopular candidate uh, and, and president-elect at the same time with nonetheless all the powers that come with the office um, and a pretty dramatic agenda uh, coming in. So no, the, the clash looking forward looks looks pretty intense. And I, I don't know from your perspective, but it looks kind of unprecedented to, to me. It's crazy. I mean, there's nothing, nothing's ever happened like this. We thought the Bush administration coming in was bad and we threw a fit because the guy who was at Interior, you know, head of the forest program at Interior had been a lobbyist. So, well, okay, this is, we're in a whole different world right now with, you know, Tillerson at State and, you know, people who have spent their entire professional lives undoing and attacking the federal government uh, are now in charge of it. So uh, we're headed into uncharted territory and, uh, you know, we're going to be there watchdogging it. There's a lot of organizations who are mobilizing to try to, you know, hold them accountable to reveal and expose what's going on and, and hopefully the, the public wakes up at some point. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Kurt, for coming on. And, uh, you know, again, the Climate Investigation Center, one of the first stops to, to understanding what's actually going on uh, with the new administration. So thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Let's move now to Desiree Kate. Desiree is a journalist and a Miwok organizer who has lived out at Standing Rock fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline for the last several months and just arrived in D.C., where she'll join with District 13, a partially Hunger Games-inspired hub of millennial resistance there to Trump's agenda. So welcome, Desiree. And and before we get started, uh, I just want to give a quick preface to our listeners who might notice a difference between our usual... Uh, high-quality uh, sound and, and what's, what's currently happening, which is me sitting in a DuPont Circle Starbucks. I am in D.C. for the inauguration, uh, and uh, part of traveling is that you are not always in, in you know, the most ideal circumstances for uh, recording a podcast. So in here, you might hear uh, an espresso machine at some point, some chairs rustling, um, but uh, that is, you know, part of in the age of Trump, in the, in the age of climate chaos, learning to accept uh, a little bit of uncertainty. And so, you know, we're embracing that spirit uh, this month on Hot and Bothered, and no better time to do it uh, in the lead up to the inauguration. So, Desiree, uh, thank you for bearing with me for that, uh, that intro, and thanks for uh, coming on the show again. Yeah, thanks for having me on.
Great. And so, you know, to start off, last time we spoke, um, you were out at Standing Rock. Uh, and so would love to, to hear kind of what your sense is now uh, for, for what's happening there. I think a lot of people were, were sort of paying attention to these, these very dramatic moments that happened around uh, increasingly militarized police brutality. Uh, and, you know, people may have, may have not been paying as much attention uh, over the last couple of weeks um, as things, as winter has set in. Uh, there's been a little bit of less news coming out. Um, so what's your sense for, for what's happening there? Um, how are people feeling and what's going on? Well, as far as I know of what's going on at camp, I would say that, you know, you mentioned that people were watching as there was increased police brutality. And there's a sense that that stopped. I mean, two days ago, my friend was shot in the face with a rubber bullet. He's, again, we're going to have someone that, like Susie Despa, who has maybe lost some of the vision in her eye after having a similar experience on the backwater bridge. Um, there are still a few hundred water protectors out there. I have left. Um, I haven't been there for about two weeks. But obviously, I keep in touch with the people in my community there. My year is still there. Um, so I'll be going back in a little bit, but what I hear from folks are there are still legal battles going on with a lot of people. Some of the more notable cases that um, I'm personally following is BJ Nastasio, who is the guy that disarmed the DAPL security officer or employee who was barreling towards camp with a loaded AR-15 BJ disarmed him and is now on the Morton County's most wanted list. There's also a case of a man named James White, Jimmy White. He goes by Angry Bird, who is a Lakota man who, for those of us who were at camp, he was one of the protectors of the water protectors. So he was on security, he's a local, so he provided a lot of intelligence and things that otherwise uh, were crucial, crucial, crucial to the fight thus far and continuing on. I'm not sure where he's at now, but so those two cases are going on. Um, there are still people doing actions um, and trying to go pray on the Turtle Mountain Um burial site, which is right near camp. Uh, there's also now a quote-unquote observational rocket launcher that's shown up thanks to the National Guard. I have heard about there's a big um, flat spot where they've graded down the earth to like what looks like maybe park a whole bunch of vehicles. So there's some concern that camp is going to be raided. Um, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe issued yesterday a press release that said um, they're going to go in and remove some of the leftover debris and things like that, and they need people out of those camps because it's in a floodplain. But those who remain, I don't have a very solid sense of if they're going to stay or not. Um, and 
I have heard over and over and over again from folks, they're like, I didn't come here to reroute a pipeline or to temporarily halt while we bicker and court a pipeline. We came here to stop a pipeline. And so I think there will be some people who won't leave the camps, even uh, at the behest of the tribe saying it's a floodplain. I think, um, you know, folks are out there and they've been putting their lives on the line. And so to continue to do that is not something that they'll even flinch at. And uh, I personally am very thankful to those folks who are dedicated like that. Um, It was just too cold for me. Uh, I needed a short reprieve. So. Right. That sounds like, you know, things are, um, people are going going home potentially some folks are staying there but you know as as you and I both know there are always pipelines right Mm -hmm. there are a million projects million of these projects popping up and probably you know increasingly so um over the next four years and so you know this is our kind of inauguration um special so you know I'm wondering if you could speak to uh both you know what you see is kind of the future of uh the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, now that Trump is, is set to become president, but also the sort of broader resistance um, that, that's really kind of grown up in the last couple of years against fossil fuel infrastructure. And there's so much sort of bound up in the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline, of course, indigenous sovereignty, uh, racial justice. And so, you know, what do you see as, as uh, what do you see these fights looking like in the coming years? So with Dakota Access, they, I think, in the last couple of days, were um, there was a denial around the environmental impact study. <clears throat> that was a win for camp, for the movement. Um, so one of the things that people, we all, were pushing for is an extended environmental impact statement, a full one, not like this sort of half measure that was offered before with no consultation. Um So I think that right now we'll see a lot of like legal stuff going on. The state of North Dakota just approved uh, out-of-state lawyers being able to come in and represent water protectors. So that's a big uh, win as well because we'll have good representation for folks. Um, But I think, yeah, we'll see a lot of the legal battles. um, And I think, you know, the young folks and those who are the strongest of of those at camp are are going to stay and fight. That's that's what I think is going to happen, you know. And I'll continue to support them, cover them. You know, I'm a photojournalist, so um, that's what I think will happen in the shorter term with uh, the Dakota Access fight. And then for the broader movement. I just really hope that people will turn the energy that they are feeling right now, be it frustration or anger or fear, and really start to use that energy channel in a way in which communities begin to organize against the harmful impacts um, that may land at their doorstep with a Trump administration. So we can say, yeah, you know, we're organizing against Trump and we're going to fight Trump, 
but the fight against Trump looks like, you know, a, a battle against a sheriff that's empowered to be racist and and allow for racist behavior from probably his officers, you know? So a lot of the negative things that a lot of us worry about with Trump, we're going to see play out on a more neighborly level. And I think that's what worries me personally is like bigots are going to be completely empowered because we've got a bigot in power. So there's going to be a lot more like community fights and those fights might bubble up into collective fights like um, probably regarding border issues and immigration um, and citizenship and things like DACA when all those what we know are going to be garbage policies from him come we're going to have to fight those and so that might also mean fighting like different pillars of power within the Trump administration through his agencies. So we might be fighting Bureau of Land Management fights because Trump is trying to open up the national parks for fracking. So I think a lot of that kind of stuff is going to happen where we need to get really good at identifying uh, early the fights at the table and start on them early and just keep at it because if you delay I guess one thing I learned from seven months solid at Standing Rock is you really got to just be there early and freaking fight hard the whole time and you know he's already um, elected so it's not really early anymore because I think early to me would have been not letting him get elected but um, you know, it's er- early in his administration. So we know what can happen just over the course of a short four years. So we just got to fight early and be ready to sustain that fight. And I know that I personally am going to be going really hard for these four years because I don't, I'm able to, and I don't feel like I really have a choice because he's just such trash. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, um, you know, on that, on that tip, uh, this, this project you've been involved in, District 13, uh, seems to be sort of in that spirit of getting, getting there early and um, sort of keeping up a kind of sustained resistance. And so, you know, I was excited to, about this project in part because I really love the Hunger Games, uh, and it's a <laughs> reference to that. Um, uh-huh. but, you know, could you talk a little bit about that and just what the what the sort of inspiration behind it is? Um, you know, where you see the metaphor coming from, and uh, yeah, what 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 the plans are there? Yeah, totally. So, in Hunger Games District Thirteen is this rogue radical district that fights against basically the establishment. Um, so that is the story with the metaphor. Um, District 13 House may change its name, may not, I don't know, but right now we call it District 13 House. It is a home and house for activists who are doing expressly anti-Trump organizing that 
organically came about from the People for Bernie movement. So it's myself and a bunch of other amazing radical women that, you know, we're kind of under the Bernie umbrella, but also our intersectional organizers. We just found a house and we'll be making it available. We still have to figure out, you know, the the how of who all's in that house, but it's going to be a resource for activists who are doing that kind of organizing that need a place to stay and a place to put their backpack and charge stuff and have interviews and paint banners and develop signs and knit pussy hats, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, A lot of times activists, including myself, that don't have the institutional support of some, you know, like big green, like 350.org or Sierra Club or any others, like it makes it really hard to be a community activist because it doesn't pay. So everything that we do is volunteer, which means, um, you know, the resources for people like us are much smaller until we start doing amazing things like not asking the establishment for money and fund this house to the tune of like $50,000 in 10 days on fundraisers because we have people power and we don't need institutional support. So it's kind of this, I don't know, it's a project that's really grown and there's a lot. Our advisory board is like, my mind is blown. Like every time I look at it, I'm just so freaking excited. And the women who are involved with organizing the house, and there's a couple guys in there. Um, I'm on this thing called the action faction, which is the, um, nonviolent civil disobedience, uh, like nonviolent direct action planning group. So just, um, we'll be planning some stuff in DC that are of that nature. There's a huge toolbox um, to organize within under that ethos. When you look at houses in the past, like I immediately think of the Code Pink House in D.C. That thing, as far as I can tell, like really launched a wave of activism because there was such a resource, like not having to worry about a $350 a night hotel room in the heart of D.C. is going to make a lot of organizing a lot easier yeah so you know looking looking toward uh the rest of 2017 and through 2020 uh just to you know close out uh if you could say you know maybe maybe three words about you know where you're at what what you're excited about fearful of you know three words to to sort of encapsulate you know where you stand on the on the eve of, of trump's inauguration um, can it be four words? Absolutely. Let's give them hell is all I can really say. Let's give them hell. Let's turn now to Cindy Weisner. 
Cindy is the National Coordinator of Grassroots Global Justice Alliance, a national alliance of U.S.-based grassroots organizing groups. They're organizing to build an agenda for power for working and poor people and communities of color. Cindy's also the co-chair of the Climate Justice Alliance. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. So, Cindy, your organization, Grassroots Global Justice, is partnering with the Climate Justice Alliance, uh, partnering with other groups on something called It Takes Root, a coalition that is forming to kind of take the fight to Washington, D.C. for uh, President-elect Trump's inauguration, for continuing organizing afterward. And so first off, I guess I'd like to ask you, you know, how did the idea of aligning sort of a number of these grassroots movements take hold? So our alliance, the Grassroots Global Justice Alliance, is a national alliance of grassroots organizations that is building um, a popular movement for peace, democracy, and a sustainable world. And we uh, really believe in supporting each other's local struggles and collaborating with national and international allies um, and to really share that vision and commitment towards uh, building a transformative social justice movement here in this country and beyond our borders. And we have been in relationship with different sister alliances like uh, the Climate Justice Alliance that we are a, a, a co-founder of uh, with many other organizations, um, with the Right to the City Alliance, and also with um, Indigenous Environmental Network. And we thought it was really key and important to come together at this moment um, to build a plan of action and response um, that was going to be both oppositional but also visionary. And that uh, it was an opportunity to really also lift up some of the solutions that um, we've been organizing around for years um, in, in different frontline communities across this country. And I think that uh, we felt pretty early on, um, right after the election and, and in terms of the results of the Electoral College, um, and we felt that it was important um, to really uh, stake a claim, you know, because we saw, like, every day the political context, uh, um, you know, sort of continues to change for the worse. Um, the appointments that uh, Trump is making um, are really uh, a clear assault on the many gains that people of color, women, immigrants, LGBTQ folks, indigenous peoples, um, low-income uh, tenants and workers have fought for. And so I think that we understand that this is going to have implications um, for many decades to come. And, uh, you know, our members, uh, which are, you know, uh, from our different alliances, have a lot, have much at stake at this moment. And we're, we, we felt it was really important to come together and align with each other um, to, to aggregate our power and to bring forward um, not only the impact, uh, many of our member groups are, I would say, at the crosshairs of Trump and his administration's attacks, and we felt that it was important to be able to bring those frontline leaders and organizers um, to be able to, to speak for themselves, to be able to um, be in the streets together with other allies, 
um, to participate very visibly in the in the women's march, but also um, to be able to share and shift the narrative about what kind of solutions um, we're needing at this moment. Cindy, you used this metaphor crosshairs, and you know, unfortunately, I think it's a very apt uh, metaphor. And I wonder, you know, in that context. What does it look like uh, for your groups, you know, uh, whether it's the membership within within your own alliance with other groups, to then try to keep climate change at the center of discussion as well? Obviously, a lot of people, and you know, you're coming to us from Miami, a lot of people facing the effects of climate change every day. But at, at the same time, I think it's very often thought of as this long-term issue, a kind of abstract issue. So, you know, what is it? How is it that your your alliance, other groups that you're working with, are putting climate change? Uh, you know, at the center of the story, how are they connecting the climate issue to some of these other issues facing, you know, the members of these groups? In in the most immediate sense, our, our members are preparing to um, maintain and defend um, the, the, the gains we've made in terms of uh, issues around racial justice, gender justice, environmental and climate issues, and housing justice issues. And I think that part of what's really key and important to understand is that we got to continue resisting the attacks of the incoming administration. And um, we believe very firmly in working together to combat the isolation and, and siloization <laughs> that I think can tend to happen. And we also think that it's important um, to be really clear about what's on the agenda. Uh, like, uh, like I would say, what are what are going to be kind of be able to predict what are the main attacks or what are the things that are going to be on the chopping block. Um, for uh, this Trump administration. And one of them, obviously, is um, really targeting um, migrants, immigrants, refugees, um, Muslims. Um, the second area is going to be around um, the continuing um, denial of climate change and being able to put forward um, I think of what, what we call a dig, burn, uh, dump economy as the solution, as the way to deal with the economic crisis that we're in and, um, and further uh, exacerbate the, the climate uh, and environmental justice impact. And then I think the third area I think that is going to be is going to be on social services, you know, whether it's uh, extreme cutbacks in healthcare. Um, uh, social security, um, sort of basic, uh, sort of needs, uh, you know, welfare. And so I think that, um, we, we're, we're preparing, you know, we're trying to understand that there's going to be certain attacks to particular issues and communities. And how do we, uh, position ourselves with other allies and sort of the mass population here in the U.S. to talk about the importance of all these issues, the interconnection of these issues, and that the the reasons, um, you know, sort of fight against what I think are going to be short-term kind of um, sort of gains that people might think that they're making in terms of like, yes, let's create more jobs in the fossil fuel industry um, and really doing a pretty massive um, popular education campaign about what that may mean, you know, and really point to the devastating effects of, uh, you know, the fossil fuel industry and and um, and that those jobs are are can be um, are temporary, but they end up doing will end up doing a lot of damage, like what we've seen happen in um, North Dakota with the the pipeline or the Keystone XL pipeline. 
You know, it's, you mentioned, I think, the labeling the, the new administration's policies on energy as dig, burn, and dump. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I actually don't think I've heard their new policies put so coherently, so they should thank you for, um, you know, after a drill, baby drill, I think they've been looking for some branding or something. But <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously the fight against, um, you know, against the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, coming on the heels of the fight against the Keystone XL Pipeline, really huge flashpoints that have brought large coalitions uh, together, you know, are, are there, do you see on the horizon uh, or are there happening that get, getting less publicity, other kind of flashpoint struggles around this like dig, burn, dump uh, agenda? Is it a question of waiting and seeing maybe if, if DAPL picks up again? Are, are there specific kind of kind of fights right now that, that you think we need to start paying more attention to? Or is it a, a kind of wait and see question in terms of real flashpoints? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that we can wait and see. I think the writing is on the wall. And what we've been saying, even before Trump gets elected, we have to believe what he's saying until he proves otherwise. And I think so far it's been very clear. He's, he's acting pretty consistently in terms of his politics and his ideology. And I think the Republican Party is giving him a blank check um, to move forward. And so uh, by his appointees, um, the most, uh, you know, anti uh, uh, climate, anti-people of color, anti-gender justice. I mean, I think it's very clear about who he's putting in positions of power, who he's putting in his administration to give him guidance and counsel. And I think we have to be very, very prepared and eyes wide open um, and not normalize. I think this is going to be a key battle, actually. It's almost going to be one of those hegemonic battles that we have amongst the movement and I think also um, in, in this country about not normalizing, not legitimizing, actually someone who actually doesn't have a mandate. I think that's one thing that we have to be very clear about. Um, Trump doesn't have a mandate. He wasn't elected. Uh, you know, he was elected by an outdated racist uh, uh, electoral college system. And if you actually put together the amount of people who either didn't vote, voted independent, or voted just because they wanted something different and didn't assume that their vote was going to count because they thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, I think that there's a lot of people who have buyer's remorse. And I think it's really important now to, to be clear, he's the most unpopular uh, president going into office at this moment. And I think that, that that's going to be an important struggle, I think, that we have. Um, and, and, and we have to, you know, make it um, ungovernable to be able to gain some level of traction and leverage to push to, one, defend what I think the gains that our movements have made in the last, you know, 30, 40 years around a number of issues. But I also think to be able to make political space, particularly at the local level for the things that are really important to us. So I think that we're going to see more and more mobilizations like we saw at Standing Rock in terms of the protection of water, protection of natural resources. Um, we're going to see more and more solidarity and 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 and, and uh, people coming together in ways that we've never really seen actually in this historical context in our lifetimes um, to be able to protect and defend each other. We're going to be able to see new articulations of um, I think a politics. I think at this moment because we've never um, we haven't in this country lived under authoritarian regimes and I think that that's something that is going to be new to a lot of people um, we see the attacks on media and and the need for us to really defend um, you know from all the way from rights 
of journalists to the rights of um, migrants to the right of water and air. And I think that this is going to be one of those moments where we have to up up our, our our platform, up our ways of how we thought about organizing and and, and really be able to think about ways to um, involve so many millions of people that I think uh, feel like us, uh, want the same things that we want, and I think are ready to get out there to, to protect and defend, um, you know, what we have, but also to make space for the new things that we need. So... Let's you know. Speaking of making making way for for new things, and you know, you sp- spoke before about the importance of not just playing defense, but also advancing uh, a positive vision. I want to ask you something about this just transition concept that Grassroots Global Justice Alliance is, is pushing, and of course, other groups have pushed too. And you know, I think for me, this uh, the just transition frame. I've often in my head the sh- kind of shortcut thinking concretely tends to go to like, oh, okay, this is about you know former coal miners building windmills, or maybe it's about folks in cities who are underemployed or unemployed, getting a chance to, you know, install solar panels or blow insulation or, or something like that. You know, in terms of your groups, when, you, when you're talking about a just transition and, and thinking about that framework under Trump, how do you, when you're organizing, how, how do you talk or think about the just transition? So for us, I think what's very important at this moment is to really do a paradigm shift around the economy, around the climate crisis, and around democracy. Um, and part of that for us has been this concept of just transition um, that has a, a longstanding history with an actual, um, you know, the oil, chemical, atomic workers, international union uh, coined, the train, uh, coined the term just transition, right, in the late 1960s as, you know, as the workers who understood the impact that this had, um, you know, that their work, uh, the production of toxic materials, um, understood the impact of the health on workers and the community, right? And so we place that historical context around just transition, um, and it has evolved it in, you know, and, and based on a lot of the work that people have done in the 80s and people kind of pioneers in the, in the environmental justice movement. And for us, we kind of place ourselves, both um, the work that the Climate Justice Alliance does and many of its member groups, including us as Grassroots Global Justice Alliance, around this framework of just transition towards a regenerative economy. And that we are clear that this framework has to be able to um, make shifts, right, fair and sustainable shifts away from what, what we think is a violent extractive economy um, towards something that's more democratic, um, ecologically rooted, um, and that's actually based on, on some on alternatives. And so um, here in the United States, across frontline communities, they're beginning to advance just transition strategies um, that uh, begins to shift uh, economic priorities away from the extractive dirty energy, from the big uh, burn dump e- economy, into um, and redirecting those into uh, those 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 resources into local living economies and local living communities, and so. The Our Power campaign that is um, was launched by the Climate Justice Alliance is a campaign that's rooted in a just transition strategy that takes um, some directly takes on the the worst manifestations of the extractive economy like mountaintop removal, cold mining, 
um, toxic waste, coal incineration, oil refineries, et cetera, and begins to uh, articulate a vision for uh, building local alternatives and advancing demand that redirects state um, resources um, to things like zero waste, um, uh, regional food systems, uh, public transportation, um, clean um, community energy, which we're calling energy democracy now, um, uh, efficient and durable housing, um, ecosystem restoration, um, et cetera, and that it begins to have a more um, interdependent kind of uh, relationship with the planet, but also with the limits, right, of nature. And so I think that for us, it's very key that, you know, we can't think about climate justice without thinking about racial and gender justice. And that we know that our struggles, whether it's around water, land rights, food sovereignty, um, and ending extractivism, that those are also interwoven in our struggles around, uh, you know, racial justice, gender justice, global justice. And so all of that to say is that we believe that more than ever, this framework can be an invitation to people, that people, uh, people, um, you know, I, I would say people voted, um, you know, with, with thinking about that they needed something new, right, that they need something new, that they were tired of sort of the, the current establishment, they were feeling that they need that um, we need an economy that really deals with the needs of people and families and communities, and we think that this could be an alternative that we can point to. And it's a long-term vision. It's not a overnight, you know, thing. It's not it's mm-hmm. not something that's going to happen overnight. It's it's one of these things. It's a, it's an invitation to tell people. We also think that the economy sucks, and we think something new has to happen, but there's also these other components that are really key. And so instead of uh, relying on sort of racist and jingoistic sort of like, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, narratives and politics, that we struggle and fight for people's commitments to the best in them and towards humanity and that we can actually begin to point to that there's something different, that it doesn't have to be a corporate-driven economy of, like, some real estate, like, con artist that is going to then create sort of um, livelihood and, and, and right livelihood for people, you know, and it's actually going to be something dramatically different. And I think that's the opportunity. And so... You know, so I think we're in an uphill battle, both uh, concretely, you know, and 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 I would say uh, ideologically, but I, we also think fairly confident that this this could be something that people can gravitate to. We've been doing work in working class communities and in rural communities, in white communities, and in people of color communities and immigrant communities, and this framework once sort of laid out. Like, I think people can begin to have that hope and vision that there is something different and that they can see themselves part of making sure that, uh, you know, we are part of building, both reclaiming that democracy, but also being able to say, this is how we create um, alternatives to the current kind of political economic uh, situation that we're facing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, I think, a really attractive and exciting framework. Um, at the same time, you know, in terms of the present, like you said, you know, it's uphill. And uh, I think you said the economy sucks, which I, I completely agree with. So, you know, I mean, in this context, I'm just, you know, asking, uh, let's say asking for a friend when you, you know, wake up, 
you know, what gets you out of bed? What keeps you motivated uh, day in and day out? I am a firm, firm believer um, in um, the, the, the power of people. And I think that to me, time and time again, we see that just regular folks, right, um, make, make dramatic shifts in history. And I think that when we look back at this time as a, you know, as a historical turning point, um, I think we're going to see this as a moment where our movements, um, got stronger, got more unified, begin to cohere in a more defensive, um, posture and then really pivot um, to be on the offensive. And I think that um, I believe in transformation of individuals. I believe in transformation of movements and uh, and obviously of history. And I think that to me, that's, um, you know, what gets me up. And the other thing that gets me up is my dog wanting to go for a walk. But um, <laughs> but I think that to me, I'm 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 hopeful of this moment because I think we're going to be able to see um, the best in people. We're going to also see the worst in people, but I think it's also going to be opportunities for learning and for also drawing the line. Um, kind of who who's supporting us, who who do we have on board, and who we're fighting against. I think those things are just going to become much more dramatically clear in this next period. And our final interview is with May Bouvi, a founder and now the executive director of 350.org. 350 is an organization that has profoundly transformed climate organizing in this country and around the world. So the last time we talked was just before the election, and I was asking you uh, what the task for the climate movement would be under a perspective President Clinton. So something different happened uh, than what we had expected back in late October or early November, I think it was, and President Trump is about to take office. So to start off, uh, how has your answer to that, that question changed? You know, what would you say are the, are the biggest tasks for the climate movement over the next four years? Well, there's no question that not only does Donald Trump present a different kind of threat and a different kind of challenge for the climate movement, but I think he represents that for absolutely every movement that we're connected to. And we were looking towards the Clinton years already with a sense of real concern that the short window of time we know is essential for really dramatic action on climate uh, was going to be a struggle. We, we were already preparing for mobilizations immediately to try and make a clear case to a President Clinton that she needed to act on climate in a way that connected to the need for economic revitalization and a multiracial populism that we know this country needs. So that was the game plan. That's what we were looking towards. We were not... Uh, excited necessarily for that potential, but we were prepared. And so the Trump news is absolutely devastating to the climate cause because he doesn't even 
concern himself with the existence of the problem, let alone sharing, as he does on many other issues we care about, a completely opposing view to what progressives care about. And there are bigger concerns than that even because he's representing this politics of complete whim combined with a politics of fear. So there's a new way of operating that we have to, I think, discover as movements while also confronting a the politics of the right that we're already quite familiar with and the way that they divide us across every possible difference we can imagine. And so what is 350.org up to in particular? How are you responding both to these appointments from Rex Tillerson to Scott Pruitt? And what will you be doing around the inauguration itself? We're trying to do a lot of different things at once. And on the one hand, there's a lot of resistance to be done and creating the right framework for that resistance very early on. So we have been active in the since the election in trying to categorize Trump's agenda on climate as very dangerous and trying to be crystal clear that we're not trying to wait and see what happens, but that we actually have to take seriously the threat that he poses. So that started immediately. We've been very active around the appointments because for most of the offices that concern themselves in some way with climate change, the wor- <laughs> we'd be hard-pressed to think of worst possible nominations for what we care about. And appointing the head of Exxon to be our secretary of state is probably the best example of this. So we've had actions across the country trying to encourage members of the Senate not to vote for these appointees and doing so in such a way that, again, tells the right story of resistance among the climate movement. And for inauguration, we're so grateful that there's a number of different mobilizations planned and that the climate movement can plug into, especially the Women's March. I know there's going to be a really significant climate contingent there, and there will be actions from allies at the Movement for Black Lives, counting down from MLK Day through inauguration, from our movement allies and the Dreamer movement, um, with a big action in January. So there's lots and lots of mobilizing that we're trying to support, but we're really, as soon as inauguration is done, turning our attention to April 29th, which is the date set aside for a massive climate march in Washington, which we think can be actually a really hopeful moment to try and tell the story of what the solution to climate change requires in terms of transforming the economy. And actually, there's a way in which that story is our best response to Trump, who claims to be an economic populist and job creator, but who will do it in such a way that only makes billionaires richer and doesn't do anything to prevent the build out of fossil fuel infrastructure. So We think the march is a wonderful opportunity to band together across movements once again, but to really talk about climate change in its fullest terms, both 
the massive threat that it poses to current and future generations and what its solutions afford us and really exposing that Trump is dishonest when he claims to be interested in economic revitalization. And we think this is a way to actually build a bigger and more powerful movement. Yeah, and to, to sort of go off of that, I mean, around the appointments and the inauguration across sort of movement contexts, there seems to be a real kind of disruptive energy, not just on climate, but, uh, you know, against people like Jeff Sessions, who's up for attorney general, uh, and, you know, things like the potential repeal of the Affordable Care Act. So what do you think, and you mentioned this briefly, what do you think this kind of, you know, mutual support and solidarity uh, looks like on, on these different fronts? Is there a way to, you know, take some of these fights, even the really purely defensive fights, out of out of movement silos? Yeah, I I think so. And I think in many ways this was happening pre-Trump. And if there was if there was a strategy that was really working in the last few years, it was the one where we all learned to connect our various concerns together. And I'm really grateful for the fact that the relationships required to bridge across all of these movements already exist in many respects. Obviously, we have to grow much stronger together, but we're not starting from zero by any means. So there have already sprung up dozens and dozens of really impressive cross-movement efforts just at the national level. And I'm hearing that the same is true at the city level and the state level. And so the question, I think, will be, what is the strategy that connects us all? Because I think the goal is pretty clear that we need to defeat Donald Trump and Donald Trumpism. The, again, this policy of fear and hate and isolation that is so damaging to all of us. And I, that's what's uniting people. And I think we're going to see this expressed electorally. We're going to see this expressed in the kind of public education that we're doing. We're going to see it expressed in our joint efforts to build bigger movements, both the members of our own organizations, but people understanding that even if you're signing up to receive an email and join with 350.org, you're actually joining a much larger movement beyond any single organization. It's just your particular entry point because you happen to care an awful lot about climate change. But I, I am quite encouraged by all of the efforts. And I just came from a conversation with a lot of groups who for many years, we've known each other, we've been friendly, but we haven't necessarily tried to build something new together that's really bold. And that's what I see shifting. And so I hope that when we look back on these years, it was a time when we all learned to work in new ways, experiment better together. And I don't just mean organizations. I mean new movements of individuals, movements of students, movements of farmers, movements of churches, and the, and the organizations that make up the so-called progressive infrastructure. Yeah, that was definitely something I, I was hearing from a lot of folks uh, in the lead up to the election. It was just a real sort of hunger for for more collaboration. And, and something else I was hearing you know, was was a was a, another kind of hunger, uh, especially from folks in the climate world, um, for for kind of big scale solutions. So getting out of the sort of narrow lane that climate policy can, can exist in and, and starting to include sort of visions for 
uh, economic justice and for racial justice. And, you know, had the sense that the wool was sort of off, off our eyes, in a sense, for uh, what democratic administrations will do without, without pressure from below. And, you know, based on the urgency of, of the science and what's coming, uh, people are talking about these sort of very large scale, very non-incremental uh, changes that were needed. Bill McKibben, of course, wrote uh, an article in the New Republic arguing for a World War II style mobilization, uh, for massive investment in green jobs. And so, you know, the politics have changed, of course, and, and the kind of uh, context that we're in, but, uh, you know, the physics haven't, uh, unfortunately. So, you know, maybe this relates back to, to plans for the 29th and plans coming out of uh, the table you mentioned, but uh, looking toward the, the Trump administration or regime, whatever you want to call it, uh, how do we balance, you know, the need to, to defend institutions and programs like the EPA or the Affordable Care Act uh, from being totally eliminated, this, this kind of a defensive position, and try also somehow to create the space for, you know, these kinds of ambitious policies uh, that are just as needed now as they were on November 8th? It seems like it's a question of timing. And we're, you know, obviously, I think, as movements, still trying to adjust to the new reality <laughs> and doing the best we can to do that while we're actually making change happen. So in the same time that we're organizing protests, and publishing op-eds and trying to support our members and our groups to grow, we're also needing to think about very actively what are the new strategies we, we need to employ and what are the old strategies that are so relevant, as you're saying. And my sense is that once inauguration happens, there will be an ability to pivot a bit to focus on the proactive battles that we know are necessary. And it's not going to take any pressure uh, off of us to resist. But I, I do think this is one of those cases where the best defense is a good offense. And I'm hearing that from all corners, that even to, to sustain the level of action that we know we're going to need over four years, it seems impossible to only be resisting and, and saying no. That said, we have so many examples of movements in this country and around the world who've done just that and have, because they've had to. And so I, that may end up being what we do, but i I reasonably confident that in, in the spring, we're going to start to turn our attention to once again putting forward the vision that we all know we need. And this is where the role of cities and states and the international community comes in, because especially, you know, on climate especially, we have not been able to do much with the federal government for the last many years. We've focused so much attention on the Obama administration because executive action seemed like one of the few tools we had at our disposal, things like stopping the Keystone Pipeline, stopping Arctic drilling. The clean air, some of the clean air legislation, some of those rules came out of the executive. So it's not dissimilar to where we've been in that we need to find different spheres to put our policies forward. And if we just think about the example of 100% renewable energy policies, which we know are needed, lots of cities have already signed up to that. San Diego 
has one of the most aggressive policies. And we can imagine a lot of our biggest cities in the U.S. really adopting that kind of a framework. And there's that's not to ignore rural communities as well, where there's so much that can be done around agricultural policies and practices. So there is a lot that can be done. And I, I have a sense from talking to people that this is actually happening on the ground already. And so that's how I imagine it will play out. Well, I'm not going to say that I feel more hopeful because, you know, that can just get a bit cheesy. But I I do feel better equipped after hearing these conversations. I guess if I had to choose still one really obvious cliche to sum things up for me, it'd be the silver lining one Um, in the sense that with Trump in the White House, the question of really broad progressive alliances that are anchored in something more profound and more dangerous than just a few PowerPoint presentations taken from United Nations website. I, you know, I do think this is a good direction to, to be going in and, and to be really be working through uh, at the beginning of this of this new era. Right. We can all be thankful that we have more at our disposal than U.N. Uh, PowerPoints, which which, you know, has not always been true in the climate movement, of course. Uh, you know, and, and it's exciting that uh, the movement is, is, I think, more advanced in some ways than it has been. And, and a lot of our guests really, really showed that. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think for me, the challenge, you know, still remains finding that that sweet spot between social justice in general and then very specific policies around energy, around urban planning uh, and all that. And, you know, I think, you know, listening to, to our conversations, it does sound to me that really filling in that just transition frame, putting some tofu on the bones, uh, as Cindy was talking about, you know, that really could be the key, the key going forward and then putting this newer, richer, just transition idea really at the center of progressive politics uh, in the years ahead. Right. And I think it's it's if this election has done something, it's kind of forced to, to look at, you know, what what sort of transformations are necessary in organizing more generally, but specifically in climate organizing and making it something that's not, you know, about a set of elite concerns and just what happens in UN, UN chambers, but really connecting it to uh, people's everyday lives and, and, and how, how folks can put food on the table and, and roofs over their head and such. Yeah, you know, I, I completely agree with that, Kate. So, so look, 2016 sucked, 2017 is going to suck, everything sucks, but you already knew that. So if you're sick of wallowing in bad feelings and melancholia, if you're sick of formless existential despair, and you want to put climate change at the center of resisting Trump and of building something better, then here at Hot and Bothered, you are in the, the right place. You are. And uh, just don't give us a silent treatment. Uh, tweet us your love, tweet us your feedback, and tweet us your golden streams of climate hope uh, to hashtag climate. And as always, uh, a big thank you to our producer, Colin Kinneborough, for making us sound good and, and dealing with four interviews this time instead of one. So until next time, Kate, stay hot. And stay bothered. <laughs>